Welcome to the Shilakama Extractive Podcast. My guest today is Karina Litvak. Karina serves on the board of Italian power grid operator Ten, where she serves on the controls, risks, and sustainability, as well as the nominations, governance, and scenarios committees. Karina also serves as ambassador and founding chair of the Climate Governance Initiative. To me, she's simply a very good friend. Karina, it's lovely to have you on the show again. I look forward to our conversation. Thank you, Sheila. It's a pleasure to be here. So, so I have a couple of things uh, but, uh, to talk to you about, but let's start at the top. I mean, as a non-exec director, how has the advent of ESG changed the way companies view sustainability? I think it's been really quite transformational because, um, you know, traditionally, if one can even use the word traditionally in connection with ESG, um, the focus was really on what I would call routine operational matters. So health and safety, community outreach, product quality, uh, employee relations, those types of things. It It's had a real shift in the last few years as people acknowledge that um, sustainability issues can really get to the very heart of the corporate strategy. This is particularly the case in relation to climate change, right? Because take an industry like the one in which I serve, you know, ENI is in the oil and gas sector, or certainly started out that way, and is in the process of reinventing itself um, as an energy provider and ultimately as a clean, decarbonized energy provider. Um, you know, the, the, the topic of climate change is existential. Um, the company operates in an industry that fundamentally is obsolescing and it has two choices. It can um, gradually, you know, it can effectively milk the cow for as long as possible and then exit, or it can um, leverage its capabilities and reinvent itself into something new and different that continues to serve um, customers and stakeholders uh, in a way that is consistent with a zero carbon world. That's the route that this particular company has chosen. It's not the only route and certainly the, the exit route is a valid one, but that is a good illustration of how ESG, um, you know, infiltrates every single aspect of board decision-making. How can it not when it sits at the heart of what the company strategy is and its business model is? Hmm. So I, I want to come back, especially to uh, the intersection of uh, climate change, transition and transparency. But before I do that, mm -hmm. I, I wanted to just ask, I mean, if one thinks of what you have just said, what does this mean specifically then for companies in the way that they disclose and in the way that they report to stakeholders, including the regulator? Well, I mean, if you think back to the early days of the Extractive Industries Transparency Initiative, just to take one example, this was an effort that was aimed at tackling a systemic problem, right? The, the idea that um, extractive industries, so the, um, the production of minerals, oil and, 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 and mining, um, tended to coincide, shall we say, um, with all sorts of social, economic, and governance failures. And yet, no company acting alone could solve it. If it did, 
And there was an example of BP having valiantly attempted to do to break the mold in Angola, um, it usually uh, boomeranged against them. So the only way to solve this problem was to work together. And not just for companies to work together, but for companies and civil society and governments and investors to come together collectively and define a new standard. That was that was the birth of the EITI, which which um, you know came into existence formally in 2003. Um, not dissimilar uh, from climate change in the sense that the issue cannot be solved by any one company acting alone. And the solutions um, rely in part, there are many different moving parts to this, but one of the key factors has to do with disclosure and what does one disclose and what on what basis does one disclose? Right. So one of the big challenges um, in the in the world of, of climate transition. So that's another big T <laughs> is, you know, not just transparency, but the actual um, behaviors that will um, lead to real change and transitioning from the before to the after. Um, we need to reach agreement amongst ourselves about what constitutes um, acceptable targets, another T, <laughs> I'm on a roll here, um, what constitutes uh, acceptable indicators. Um, and so, you know, because one of the big difficulties is that people, everybody reports according to their own, um, you know, their own idea of what would be an appropriate scope, um, whether we're talking geographical or whether we're talking about the type of emissions, scopes one, two, or three, or whether we're talking about, um, about uh, our direct op our our own own fully owned operations or our joint ventures or you know so there's there are so many different ways in which this can be sliced and and it makes it impossible to compare companies with one another and therefore there's a need to get together and agree and there's a need to work with with stakeholders including critical ones to ensure that what we're actually working towards is something that will meet with their satisfaction and will be intelligible to them. So that's a lot of abstract talk I've just given you to say that in a nutshell, we can't solve this problem by just sitting in our offices and figuring out the solution alone. We have to, we have to work with each other and transparency lies at the heart of this because we need to be absolutely open about what we're planning to do how we're going to get to what we're going to do, how quickly we're going to get there, um, and um, what we're going to disclose along the way to demonstrate that we're genuinely accountable. And it's mm. not always easy because one of the challenges in, inherent in that is that you get criticized um, for not doing enough, or you get criticized, um, you get criticized for investing in activities that are better but not good enough um and um so it's it's um it can get a little bit messy and fraught but mm. fundamentally you know we have to start somewhere and we have to be ambitious mm. so um, I, i'm interested in the fact that you want to make a distinction between merely providing information and but also providing information on the modalities what yep. of the motive? I always think that uh, if we don't know the motive and the rationale behind certain decisions, uh, they may seem of, on face value to serve public good, when in effect they are saving special interests. 
in the space of climate change, how can we make sure that the direction of travel, so to speak, and the motivation for it is transparent and that it is one in which people have a, uh, can make a contribution and one that will, in fact, include, if you wish, the interests of everyone else? Yeah, great question. I mean, I think in the first instance, we have to accept that um, there are external constraints that we have to acknowledge. So it's a little bit like, you know, a person goes to the doctor and the doctor says, you're extremely overweight, so you need to lose a hundred pounds. Oh, well, doctor, I mean, I can, do, I can do 10 pounds a year. Yeah, well, that might be what you can do, but it's not what you must do. And I think oftentimes we're in that, we're in that um, trap when it comes to climate change. People tend to, ref to, to disclose in a very self-referential self way. This is what I'm able to do and this is what I'm therefore going to do and isn't it great? When in fact, we are operating in an environment, physical and abstract, where um, there's an externally defined set of constraints that if we fail to meet them, we will fail as a species. So we know now that the amount um, of carbon that we can afford to um, release into the atmosphere, that carbon budget will run out uh, by, by 2030. That's seven years away. That's nothing. And so anything short of meeting that, that uh, the, the targets that will get us to a point of stability are inadequate is inadequate. And, and so we therefore have to um, set targets that are related to what must be done as opposed to what I think I can do in my company. And that's a huge leap from where companies usually start any kind of process of change. They start from where they are and where they think they can go as opposed to where they must go. And we, you have to do both. You have to look at where you must go, and then you have to look at where you are and what, what can be done this year, next year, the year after. And, and, and so the disclosures then flow from that. And we need to then set uh, a target that is we will reach you know, zero by 2050. That is, the, uh, that is the commonly agreed goal. And then we need to work backwards to say, and therefore, in order to get to zero by 2050 or net zero, depending on the nature of the business, then by 2040, we need to be here. And by 2035, we need to be here. And by 2030 and by 2025, 2025 is only two years from now. So what are we doing right this minute to make sure that we are getting there and that the steps that we are taking are taking us on that path. And therefore, the, coming back to the transparency question, I need to make sure that my company is being utterly transparent and accountable for the progress that it is achieving in getting through each of those successive steps. And we can agree that that progress is not going to be a straight line because when you're starting out, it, things can be a little bit slower but whatever we don't do now, we have to make up for later. And we need to make sure that we will get to, fit to zero by 2050. And quite frankly, by 2040, we have to have made 80% of the progress, give or take. That's a lot. That's a lot that needs to be achieved. And that means there's an enormous, for some companies that are major emitters, 
that's an enormous um, challenge. Um, for others that are in, um, you know, less uh, lower emitting um, industries, it's a much easier proposition and they can be focused on, you know, wonderful opportunities out there to thrive, but they will not thrive if the economy as a whole has not cracked this problem. And so we're all interdependent. We all depend on everybody moving forward on this together. Sure. So, um, you know, there, as you know, there are companies and then there are companies. We have uh, mm -hmm. private companies, we have publicly listed companies, and then we have state-owned uh, companies. Now, in the petroleum space particularly, some of the largest companies are state-owned. Uh, I always thought that those that are publicly listed because they are disorderous disclosures. It's it's a, it's and, and then of course they have to raise funds in 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 the markets. Uh, they are likely to be headed in this direction uh, easily or and quicker. What of uh, mega state-owned uh, oil and gas companies? What are we going to do with making sure they too are transparent about what they are doing? to uh, help us achieve the 2030 and 2050 target? Yes, excellent question. I would firstly start by pointing out that even in the publicly listed space where the companies are subject to, you know, enormously greater uh, scrutiny than, um, than in the, um, the national oil company space, there are wide variations in the way companies respond to this challenge. And some are doing a great deal and some are doing virtually nothing. So it's by no means uh, a uniform picture. But turning to the NOCs, the national oil companies, um, it's, it's a different proposition. Um, the first thing to acknowledge is that some of them are sitting on very large, extremely um, economical, so very cheap to extract resources. By definition, therefore, they are going to be the last ones standing. It's often, it's funny, it, it makes me laugh actually, that oftentimes the American and the Canadian companies will say, we will be the last one we will, standing, we will be producing that last drop of oil because you know our Canadian oil is human rights abuse free. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's also very expensive to produce. And I think we have to be realistic that the last drop of oil will most likely be produced by Saudi Arabia and immediate neighbors and the last, um, you know, sort of shipment of gas, I would have said a few years ago would be Gazprom. Um, now it might more likely be the, the Qataris, but um, but it's going to come from those who have the cheapest, easiest to produce um, resources. And so they have a little bit more time than the rest of us to think through how this is going to play out, but they're just as shrewd as anyone else. And they know that this is not a limitless, um, you know, cash cow, that even they will need to reinvent who they are. And um, the smart ones are using their surpluses to invest and diversify so that they can make productive bets on technologies that are gonna take them into the future. You know, do I wish they were doing more and faster? Yes, I do, because we are continuing to perpetuate our dependence on fossil fuels in a way that is not sustainable, environmentally sustainable, um, and therefore may potentially be financially, um, you know, destructive, value destructive with stranded assets. But um, the key really for the NOCs 
is to be thinking as soon as possible, to be thinking now about how uh, to invest in the energy, the technologies of the future, bearing in mind, of course, that many of them also have enormous um, pressure on them to to support um, their local, their you know, their their national economies. They have enormous development needs that are tend tend to be um, funded through um, oil and mining revenues, and that's of course a dilemma. But they need to be thinking about where this industry is going and what will replace it once. Um, once this bonanza, it's not that it will necessarily run out, but it will no longer be a viable um, source of um, wealth because it will have been displaced by um, alternative energies that are sustainable. I mean, it, it, it's fair to say that uh, though the component parts of ESG have been around in some form or other for a long time, uh, seeing it the elements together is, is a relatively no, uh, novel. Uh, yeah. I think it's even more novel, this the extent to which we are now, if you wish, really taking a look inside the companies, not just because they tell us, but because we have standards by which we expect them to report. Yeah. So when you think about that, is that the ideal? Is that the new normal that we would like to get to in terms of transparency? If, in other words, if we get there, can we say to our grandchildren, it's okay now, you have a future? <laughs> and are you referring specifically to the emergence of common standards? Exactly. Okay. Um, clearly, that is, a, that is a social good that we absolutely must um, achieve and accelerate. Um, there is one determining factor, however, that is going to uh, really um, make the difference. And that is historically, traditionally, when we th think in terms of materiality, the materiality of a disclosure, we, we have always conventionally thought in terms of whether um, something is uh, likely to influence an investment decision because it will have a measurable impact in the near term. And the very nature of most sustainability challenges is that they play out over a longer period. If they played out over a short term, they would automatically come out of the sustainability bucket and just be an ordinary investment matter. And in fact, several items that used to be re regarded as kind of nice to have sustainability issues are now must have business issues because they play out very quickly. If you, if you, um, you know, have a toxic spill in a country with strong enforcement, uh, you will pay for it sooner than you can blink, and therefore it's bad business. But it used to be that companies got away with it, and so things have changed. In the case of the many of the sustainability challenges, it's still true that um, the the impacts that companies have on society uh, don't necessarily reverberate back on the quote unquote perpetrators um, as quickly as they are felt by society. And therefore the big debate um, that lies at the heart of whether or not um, we will reach consensus on sustainability standards on one single set of sustainability standards today is do we or do we not 
require disclosure of those inside out impacts. In other words, outside in are, I'm exposed to, I don't know, the risk of drought um, damaging my supply chains. That's a pretty obvious financially material impact. But if my behaviors are going to contribute to drought over the next 20 or 30 years in a diffuse range of areas around the world, I'm probably not gonna feel those impacts very directly as a company. And should I therefore be held to a disclosure standard that captures my contribution to a systemic problem? And depending on the answer to that question, we will get, um, we will get one form of disclosure, which is one that is, uh, that is co comprehensive and is, meets the, what's the definition of so-called double materiality, or we will get another, which is the conventional um, you know, classic definition of if it affects the company, we disclose it. If it doesn't affect the company in a predictable time period, then we don't disclose it and we'll, we'll stay stuck in the current loop. So, um, so the answer to your question is, I don't know. And it's a very, very actively debated question. The Europeans have picked a side and they're in favor of double materiality and the EU, um, the various EU directives that have come out since 2014 have been very, very clearly oriented towards saying companies must disclose the impact they have on the environment and society. But it, the opposite is true in the United States and, and other jurisdictions. Hmm. So it, talking of this uh, reporting, what do you think will become of reporting uh, agencies and their, their importance in this space? Uh, even when other stock markets move the direction of the New York Stock Exchange and require that corporates report, will regulation, in other words, substitute independent uh, rating agencies? Huh, that's a great question. I mean, firstly, if, 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 um, if New York Stock Exchange and other American exchanges fall under you know, revised and, and much tougher um, SEC regulation, uh, with respect to sustainability and especially climate disclosure, that will be a good thing because of course it will pull the rest of the world. If they set the standard in a way that's very divergent from the European standard, that will you know, slow things somewhat. Uh, that's not gonna dissuade the Europeans from keeping to what they're doing, but it will create a two-tier system. Uh, but certainly yes, the US moving ahead can only be good. It can be good or it can be even better. <laughs> So we'll have to see what direction it decides to take. Um, it's a very good thing for two reasons. One is that it introduces a level of, of consistency and comparability, which is why everybody you know, talks about this. But there's another reason, which I personally have witnessed in my own board in any when, so in 2014, the European Union uh, issued um, the um, directive and I'm getting, no, I'm sorry, I'm embarrassed. I'm mixing up all the different um, initials. It, it passed um, a, a new directive which took effect in 2017. So we spent 2014 to 2017 getting ready, which is exactly why they have these delays. And so that by 2017, we were fully up and running and you know, Italy had passed enabling legislation, the non-financial reporting um, uh, law in, in Italy. And what I then saw unfold before my very eyes was a complete transformation in the culture of the board. Because um, first of all, we were individually liable uh, for up to 50,000 euros for any material errors or omissions in our non-financial reporting. Well, that, that, you know, that 
directors took notice that we were individually on the hook. The company couldn't pay for us. We had to pay if we got that wrong. Suddenly everybody was asking much more searching questions and questions not just about the content of the information, but the reliability of the data collection methodologies and why are we relying so heavily on interpolation and extrapolation. Please go back and strengthen this and please bring this ultimately up to the same standard of comprehensiveness and reliability as um, our financial reporting. That was the implicit goal. The second thing that's happened is that when we started reporting on various aspects that previously had not been reported on, well, then we found ourselves reporting that we were doing things that were not necessarily state of the art, not necessarily best practice. And that's not something anybody likes. So suddenly the obvious question was, well, hold on a minute. Why are we only doing this? Surely we can do better. Um, and had we not been disclosing this, we wouldn't have been aware and we wouldn't have therefore been prompted to ask these questions. And so one thing led to another. And, you know, here we are nine years on and we are laser focused on ensuring that not only the form, in other words, not only the disclosure, but the substance, in other words, the behaviors, the actions are leading edge, are exemplary. So that if we're, if we're disclosing you know, our carbon emissions, well, that's nice, but it's not good enough. We want to be able to stand by a climate transition pathway that is fully aligned with the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change's recommendations on how to reach net zero which is a very, very ambitious standard. It's a very steep reduction curve. And we, we need to be able to say that we are aligned with that, which we now can say. We wouldn't have been able to say that nine years ago. We wouldn't have been able to get to where we are were it not for the fact that we began this disclosure journey in 2014. So disclosure is never an end in itself, but it sure as hell is a great prompt to get people to think about the substance of what they do and therefore disclose. All right. So here's my last question to you. And, and it, it has to do again with reporting, but reporting uh, not just transparently in terms of uh, fact, but also substance. How do you think uh, these reporting standards can help uh, avoid greenwashing and, and what could be the specific function of transparency in uh, tackling the challenge of greenwashing? Well, greenwashing is objectively a, a great challenge. I don't want to minimize that for a second. Um, it, 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 it's a two-edged sword because fears of getting accused of greenwashing often chill the enthusiasm of companies to be transparent about what they are doing or are trying to do. And, um, and that's unfortunate because I personally am of the view that we need to be transparent about what, what targets we are setting for ourselves in the future um, in order to demonstrate to external stakeholders that we really mean business, that we are genuinely trying to do what's right. But you know, the fear that we will be accused of having overpromised um, can induce 
um, certainly legal departments <laughs> to um, constrain what boards might otherwise want to say. And there's a balance. Of course, you don't want to ever overpromise, and you want to be in the position where you disclose targets that have been fully tested and costed and, um, you know, where you can say with confidence, we will get there because we've we've modeled it and we've got the technology and, and we know we know we will do it and we probably will even do better than that but right now we're promising this because that's what we can prove we can do um, and if you can say that that's that's great but most companies are not in a position to say that in respect of a net zero target because they started very very late and their mastery of the technology is inadequate and so do you want them not to make any promises at all? Or, you know, what you see sometimes is companies saying, this is an aspiration, it's not a binding target, we just want you to know that this is what we're hoping to achieve, but it'll depend very much on whether the technology comes into existence to enable it, and it becomes a very wishy-washy, unreliable non-promise. So, um, so, you know, yeah, greenwashing is, is, is a very real concern, and, and Nobody should indulge in it. That is the bottom line. But neither should we um, refrain from being ambitious. And with ambitions, with ambition comes risk taking, and with risk taking comes failure. And we need to be prepared to in in you know endure the risk of failure and pick ourselves up and keep going. And so, yeah, I think I think we just have to all be honest about that. That's fantastic. Well. That's quite interesting because what you're saying is by uh, trying and insisting on standards, we are making others timid. And by them being timid, they are not pushing the envelopes for fear of giving the appearance of having had bad intentions or greenwashing in the first instance. Well, uh, exactly. Well, Karina, that's a good note to leave it. <laughs> uh, suffice to say, the long road. Thank you very much for joining the Sheila Kama Extractive Podcast. I enjoyed your remarks. Thank you, Sheila. Always a pleasure and wonderful questions.